It was pretty wild the day and age in which we live. And I'm getting older, so I get to talk like this now. The day and age in which we live that you can order almost anything in the world off of Amazon and have it in your hand in two days or less. And y'all, the things, if you go through your order history sometimes, it's hilarious. The things that we've ordered. I've ordered new hydraulic arms for the lift gate of our minivan that thanks to YouTube, I was able to install myself and saved a little money. Uh, we've ordered Halloween costumes, electric toothbrushes, dog collars. I mean, the list just goes on and on of the crazy things that we can order and have the same day almost, it seems like. But I remember back in the olden days, the early 1990s, <laughs> if you wanted to order something, you had to send away for it in the mail. You had to cut it out of a catalog and attach a check or money order, whatever that was, to it, and mail off for it, and it took how long usually to process? Six to eight weeks. And you, did, you couldn't track it. You didn't know where it was or if it was even going to come at all. A lot of times you order something you forget because it was so long in between the order and the receiving of the item, you just had to wait and wait and wait for it to come. Well, here we are in, in the middle of Acts chapter 1, this is what the apostles have been told to do. Jesus himself said, wait. You're going to have to wait. Jesus, as, as he is now risen from the dead, he's preparing to ascend to heaven. We saw this in the early verses. He reminds his disciples of a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not many days from now. That's as specific as he got with them. And so go back to Jerusalem and wait for it. And we're going to see the fulfillment of this promise beginning next week when we get to chapter 2. But here we get a window this morning into this waiting period. Now, we just discussed it, how excruciating, how boring, how frustrating it can be to wait for what you know or what you hope is coming. Tom Petty said it best, the waiting is the hardest part. But I want us to see today that what happens in the waiting, it's not just filler material to get us back into the action again. This is not just Luke who wrote this, this book. He's not just building a little bridge for us to get us to what really matters. What we're going to see today is so instructive and so important as we study it, both for the early church and also for us. As the disciples are waiting for what Jesus had promised, there are three dominant themes that rise up from this Scripture. Three things we'll see. That there was among the disciples a devotion to prayer, a devotion to God's Word, and a devotion to God's will. Three things that should define us just the same. Devotion to prayer, to God's Word, and to God's will. So let's look at those three things in turn, beginning in verse 12. It says, Then they, that is the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, that is Jesus's, brothers. 
interesting note here, back in John 7, we're told that Jesus' brothers were not believing in him. They were not having this Messiah business with their half-brother Jesus. But now, after his resurrection, here they are, worshiping. So what we have in this text, right, right up front, we've got the remaining 11 apostles. They're listed out by name. Everybody except Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus and taken his own life. But we also have others with them. Luke tells us that there were around 120 people gathered up here, including many women. Most notably, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, along with his brothers. And y'all, two quick things I just, uh, that I think are worth pointing out. <clears throat> First, the story of the church begins very, very small, doesn't it? We know there were other disciples outside of these 120. Jesus revealed himself uh, in his resurrected state to at least 500 people, the Apostle Paul tells us. But even still, we're not talking about that many. It's not a dominant religion at this point by any means. It's just a handful of people. We could easily fit these 120 in this room with space left to spare. But this accords with what Jesus promised concerning his kingdom. Do you all remember when Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed? which is a tiny, tiny little seed, but when it's planted, eventually it will grow up and become something great. And we're seeing right here the Genesis, the very early seed form of the church. It's very small. But then secondly, I want you to know this, that apart from the big three, that is Peter, James, and John, apart from those three, none of the other disciples that we just saw are mentioned again by name in the Bible. Not even Mary. This is the last time in the scripture that we see these people singled out by name. So if you've ever wondered, well, you know, what exactly happened to Bartholomew or Andrew or Thomas or Mary? Well, the short answer is we don't know. But the long answer is that these people served faithfully in their calling for the sake of God's glory without any concern for a glory of their own. And y'all, there's a point I want to underscore in this because it applies to us. The vast majority of Christians who have ever lived are unknown to us. We have no idea who they were. And the vast majority of the world today has no idea who we are or that Harvest Church even exists. They don't know or care. And we might think, well, that would be a hindrance to God's plan. You know, all these unknown, ordinary people walking around on the earth. No, but that's, that's actually exactly how God operates. And it always has been. God operates through ordinary, faithful people who want to make much of Jesus and have no concern for our name being on the marquee. It's the spirit of John the Baptist. In John chapter 3, he said, let Jesus increase. He must increase. I must decrease. And from that moment on, John leaves the narrative. We really don't see him again. But it was his joy to make much of Christ. And so the fact that we don't see these people by name again does not betray their insignificance. It shows us how glad they were to put the spotlight where it belongs, on Jesus Christ. Now, what were they doing? That's the dominant question we want to ask here. What were they doing in this upper room, these 120 people? Look at verse 14 again. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now, one mind means that they enjoyed unity in faith and purpose. They were together. And they were continually devoting themselves 
to prayer. Now, this is a thread that runs through the book of Acts. God's people are always praying, it seems. And it's also an immediate point of conviction for me as I read verse 14. Because think about what prayer is. It's a lot of things, but prayer, prayer is at least this. It's an act of faith. Prayer is an act of dependence. Prayer is an act of worship. Prayer is an act of obedience to God and also of intimacy with God. Prayer is a gift that unifies and strengthens the church when we do it together. And what we see in these early disciples is an unwavering commitment to it, a continual devotion to prayer. Now, y'all, here at Harvest Church, our goal is never, ever, ever shame. But we hope for conviction. And let's not, let's not confuse the two. Conviction is a good thing that comes from God. And conviction begins with being honest, honest with ourselves, that I don't really pray like this. And if I don't pray like this, and maybe our church doesn't pray quite like what we see in verse 14, then we have to ask the question, why not? Part of the reason, I can't speak for you, I can only speak for myself individually, but part of the reason maybe we don't pray like this with continual devotion is that we've become so self-sufficient, we just don't feel a sense of dependence on God like we ought to. Part of the reason maybe that we're so overly distracted, we're so busy, we're so overstuffed with things to keep our attention. Um, maybe part of it is that I just, I honestly just don't desire nearness with the Lord the way that I should. So I, I say this for me, whatever my reasons are, none of them are any good. There's not a single good reason why I can't and shouldn't pray in a devoted, continual way. Y'all see, prayer for the Christian is not an elective course. It's core. It's essential. And so often, it's not just, y'all, when we, when we talk about conviction, we need to pray more. We might tend to take that on as a heaviness, as an obligation. I know I need to pray more. I know I need to. Yes, yes, yes. But don't miss how wonderful prayer is. That it shouldn't feel like an obligation for us, but a privilege. And if we only dabble in it, as, as I'm often so guilty of, we just kind of dabble before meals, before bedtime, things like that. That's great. That's fine. But if that's all we ever do, then what we're missing is the, the joy of communion with Jesus. That in His physical absence ascended to heaven, we actually can enjoy nearness with Him through prayer. And consequently, if we only dabble in this, we're going to miss out on His peace, His joy, His provision and His blessing, His nearness, His comfort, His will, His guidance, all of it. We potentially forfeit by simply minding our own business and not coming before Him in prayer. Y'all, God, and I, th this is an amazing thing, God has given us free and direct access to him. You don't have to go through a priest or a, some other mediator to get to God. You don't have to dress a certain way or go to a certain place. You can, uh, you can approach him right where you are anytime for any reason. You are his child. And so if we're not, if we as a church, if me individually, if we're not continually devoted to prayer as the early disciples were, we have to be willing to ask why. And then we must be willing to change course in response, both me and us as a church. What we do have, praise God, is an example. 
we see in the early church what they were up to. They didn't sit around in the upper room simply reminiscing about the good old days when Jesus was around or twiddling their thumbs. They prayed. And with that, of course, is not just prayer in some sort of kind of ethereal sense, but they're praying in a rooted way as they attend to the Word of God. And that's our second point. As the people are praying, look at what they're praying on the basis of. Verse 15, At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field, and with the price of his wickedness and uh, with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem. Sorry. So that in their own language, that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For, this is Peter again, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Now Luke gives us more information on Judas than we probably wanted, but I, and I'm, we won't focus on that so much. Notice Peter's conviction here. Both Judas's betrayal and Judas's demise came in fulfillment of the scripture which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. Then Peter makes reference to two portions of the Psalms where David was writing about betrayal that he experienced and his own vindication over his enemies. Now, very, very interesting here. David, if you go back and look at these Psalms, David never mentions the name Judas or makes any kind of direct prophecy about Judas. And yet the apostles understood the nature of Scripture the same way Jesus did. Jesus saw the Scripture as being ultimately all written about Him. This is the point of His resurrection, uh, the story of uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus comes alongside them and eventually opens their eyes to the Scripture by showing them how all the law and the prophets, everything that makes up the Old Testament in the end, ultimately is about Him. It points to Christ. And so in this case, Peter stands up as a mouthpiece for the apostles and he makes an amazing statement. He says, David's experience of betrayal was really a foreshadowing of the ultimate betrayal that Jesus would face, Jesus being the true David, Jesus being the true king of Israel. Years later, the apostle Peter wrote this down, this principle for us. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what he says. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What Peter is saying, both in Acts 1 and in 2 Peter, is that David is recording his very real personal experience, and yet the Holy Spirit is using David's pen, his mouth, to declare something yet future and far greater concerning Christ. And so what we have here, y'all, the early church from the get-go 
is committed to God's Word. But here's what that means. It's not just that they believed what the Bible said, but they stood upon it in practice. It guided their thinking and being and behaving. And so here's what the, the, the apostles have concluded. And y'all, this, we, we, can, we can look at this and say, well, yes, of course. But think about in the moment how hard this would have been to conclude. Here's what they're saying. What happened with Judas did not and could not derail the plan of God. That was the intention, both Satan's and Judas's intention, and the leaders of Israel who paid Judas the silver to do it. They thought they could derail Christ and his purpose. But in fact, no, Peter says this was God's plan, prophesied well in advance. And so rather than the evil and tragedy of Judas being something that splinters the disciples and shakes their faith and destroys the movement before it begins, something else entirely happens. They're actually emboldened by what happened to Judas because they see in all of it the reality of God's wisdom and God's power revealed in his words. Because if God was actually governing the events of Jesus' betrayal and his death and, of course, his resurrection, if God was in charge of all of that stuff, even the worst of it, then that means that God's word was governing the apostles right where they sat in that upper room, praying and discerning the next steps. That means that God's word and God's truth governs us right where we sit. No matter how bad the world seems to get, God is ultimate. God is in charge. And so they know that nobody could derail the plan of God. In fact, even the most evil actions were only fulfilling God's plan in the end by crucifying the Savior of the world so that forgiveness of sins may come. And therefore, because they are so committed to prayer and to God's word, they make the decision, Judas must be replaced. Now, we just saw that in verse 20. Peter quotes David, again, what would seem to be a very random quotation from a psalm. Let another take his office. But they understand that to be applicable right here. The disciples are committed, not just to prayer, not just to God's word, but to the fulfillment of God's will. Look with me at verse 21 now. Therefore, Peter says, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry. An apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So here we see the apostles deemed it necessary, not because Jesus commanded it necessarily. Jesus didn't say anything about replacing Judas that we know of. But here, discerning the word through prayer, they know it's true. Judas must be replaced so that we can go back to twelve apostles. And the criteria involves having a man who has followed Jesus all the way from the beginning of his ministry, that is the baptism of John, to the end, which means someone who witnessed the resurrection. And to maybe our surprise, there are at least two such men there in the room with them. Two men mentioned by name, Joseph 
and Matthias. Interesting to me, we never see these men mentioned by name in the Gospels. And yet apparently they were there all along. These men were there, right alongside the twelve. If you recall this, there's a place in Luke where Jesus gathers up 70 men and commissions them to go out two by two and perform ministry in his name. Seventy, not just twelve. My sense of things, I can't prove this, I don't know this, but my sense of things is that Joseph and Matthias, these two, were probably part of that larger 70 that accompanied the 12 in Jesus in his ministry. Well, how are they going to decide between those two guys? Apparently, they're both qualified. Well, look at verse 24 again. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, this wouldn't surprise us that they pray. We've already been told they are devoted continually to prayer. And so, of course, they're coming to the Lord. You, Lord, you know the hearts of all men, including these two men in front of us. Show us who you want. Make your choice uh, obvious to us. We see that prayer and we say, great. Right? Then they cast lots to decide, and the lot falls to Matthias. Y'all know what casting lots is? It's like rolling dice. It's like flipping a coin or drawing straws. We might call this an ancient game of chance right here. And that, that, that should stop us in our tracks. What's going on here? We've got this incredible spiritual moment where these men are gathered up together. They're praying. These men and women both are. Everybody's praying that God would make His will known. And then it seems like they just pick up a pair of dice and throw them out onto the floor. Would this, would this be like me? if I, you know, Guys, imagine that I'm driving down to Biloxi praying, God, provide financially for my family, would you please? Take care of us. And then I park at the Beau Rivage and I go spend $1,000 at the blackjack table. Is that God's answer to provision for us? Is that kind of what's happening here? Right? Am I, am I, I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth. God provide, but I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to gamble my future away. Is that what the apostles are doing by casting lots? Well, the short answer is no. In fact, what we see right here is actually an incredible combination of the great three points that I've been making this morning concerning there's a devotion to prayer, to God's word, and to God's will, all present in the casting of lots. We see one obvious thread that, that they're praying, God asking you, God, will you choose and make known your choice? Then they cast lots. Why is that? Uh, my, my, and I feel very, very confident about this. Again, I can't prove this. I feel very confident that these men are acting on a promise of the scripture here. Very directly, Proverbs 16, verse 33, which says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, Solomon said, but its every decision is from the Lord. What that means in principle is this, that even the smallest roll of the dice, every flip of the coin is ultimately governed by God. 
And there are a good number of places, if you read through the Old Testament, where lots are being cast. One of my favorite examples is uh, Jonah. When the great storm comes upon the boat, and the men are looking at each other wondering, on whose account is this storm coming upon us? Why are we being judged here? Whose fault is this? And of course, they cast lots, and guess who the lot falls to? Jonah. That was not coincidence. That was God's providence, because it was Jonah's fault that the storm had come. And so what we see when we see lots being cast in the Bible, chiefly in the Old Testament, in every case, the Lord's will is accomplished through the casting of lots because he decides that outcome. And so, y'all, the bigger principle here, which is called providence, is that things that maybe even seem to us as chance are ultimately governed by the guiding hand of the Lord. You could probably point to a thousand little moments in your life where something that seemed to be chance, coincidence, luck, karma, whatever, was in fact none of those things at all. It was the Lord. So in this case, the apostles, they don't know who's going to be the the 12th apostle, but they're entrusting by prayer and the word that God will reveal his will. They They will receive his decision even through such a crude means as the casting of lots. And he does. God gives them Matthias. Now, how do we apply something like that? Should you walk around with a quarter in your pocket and just flip it whenever a decision comes about? Is that how we're supposed to respond here? Well, the answer is no to that too, okay? And here's why. Y'all, I mentioned the, the casting of lots is fairly commonplace in the Scripture. And yet this right here in Acts chapter 1 is the last time we ever see it happen. There's never again a Christian reported as casting lots after Acts chapter 1. Now, that perhaps is a coincidence but I don't think it is. Because in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, immediately following this scripture, we see the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon His people. The promise of God's indwelling presence is about to be fulfilled so that now, not just the apostles, but everybody who believes in Christ receives His Spirit with the promise that He, the Spirit, will lead us into all truth and will give us wisdom and will point us to Christ and will disclose to us more and more of Jesus so that we might know Him and follow Him completely. And so with the Spirit comes a far greater measure for all of us of God's wisdom and God's guidance. It's what we have now by divine gift. So that means if we have the Spirit of Jesus if we have the gift of God's Word, if we have the gift of prayer and communion with the Lord, then you and I right now, we have everything we need to know and follow the will of God. That doesn't mean we know everything, but we have all that we need. And I believe in the outpouring of the Spirit that is to come, the apostles did too, and they don't cast lots anymore. They have no need for it. Now that's how I see it. But we're going to see this on display as we walk through Acts. There's no point at which the apostles in the future now, having received the Spirit, sit around and say, you know, does anybody have a coin we can flip? They've got the Spirit. So y'all, what I hope we see here in Acts chapter 1 is that right here, during this waiting period, which Jesus says was not many days, it couldn't have been that long, but it had to have been excruciating 
knowing that Jesus had promised to send the Spirit, but not knowing exactly when or how it was going to happen. And yet what we see in the middle, this in-between time, we see the character of God's people on display. 120 people who have witnessed, listen, they've witnessed the suffering of Jesus. Most of these people probably saw him die. Not understanding at all what it meant as they witnessed it. They thought this was the end. What a tragedy. What an, what an awful, terrible thing with no redeeming qualities in it. Jesus is dead. And then later on, that very same weekend, they see him alive again. And now they recognize it, that what they thought was tragedy, what they thought was the end, was only the beginning, that Jesus had come to be their Savior and ours, that Jesus died as the divine sacrifice to make atonement for the sin of the world. And because he has given his life for us on the cross, the apostles now understand, but what I hope we understand is that we have forgiveness. We receive eternal life through his death and resurrection by faith in him. And so what has happened to these people in a very short period of time now, they've gone from utter despair to absolute joy and devotion and readiness and excitement because they've experienced for themselves the life-transforming grace of Jesus Christ. So of course they're devoted to prayer. Of course they're committed to standing on God's Word. Of course they're diligently seeking His will. How could they possibly be any different after what they've now experienced? And I want to leave us this morning with the same question. How could we be any different? If we've come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the same as them, if we've received His forgiveness and His life-giving grace and His transforming and dwelling Spirit, if these things are ours as well, how could we be any different? How could we come to know Christ and His saving love for us and dabble in prayer? And, and just take little momentary you know, devotional peeks at His Word as we have need for it. And just you know, make our, our decisions the best we know how without considering His will. How could we live like that if we've received this grace? Do our lives reflect that we've come to know Christ? Not that we are perfect, of course, but that we are different, fundamentally changed. Would we pray as the disciples prayed in a devoted way that we might know Jesus Christ to the fullest measure and may walk in his will all the days that he gives to us. If we are captured by his grace, then every other way of life becomes untenable for us. I can't be any different if I've really come to know him. Let's ask the Lord to create in us that deep of a devotion. Father, you are so abundantly good to us that what would seem to be the most tragic and evil of possible outcomes, the crucifixion of Jesus, was in fact the very best thing that ever happened. Because you were governing it all, Lord. Even those evil hands and hearts that, that put Jesus on the cross, Lord, were fulfilling your great purpose so that sin might be forgiven, so that sinners might be forgiven, so that we might have grace and life 
in His name. Father, I pray this morning that we would have such depth of heart and understanding here as the disciples did. You are governing our lives right now. And there's plenty of mystery that comes with that, Father, but I pray that we would see it and embrace it. Father, we can really trust you. We can really know you. Our prayers matter. You hear us. You commune with us. Lord, your word is true and we can stand upon your word, Lord. We don't just dabble in it, Father. We can live in it. And Lord, your will is supreme and we can enter in. We can do as you desire. We can live in a way that pleases you and advances your great plan for your kingdom. All of this, Lord, is on the table for us this morning, just as it was for them. Lord, I don't know how many are in this room, maybe 120, I don't know. Father, we get maybe a sense this morning of what it was like gathered together with such anxiety, I'm sure, over what was to come. They just didn't know it all. But what they knew, they stood firmly on. That Jesus is alive. That the Holy Spirit is promised. And that, Father, you are with us. Lord, would you grant us this morning a renewed heart, both individually and collectively as a church, that we would devote ourselves continually to prayer. Knowing, Father, that it's, it, you don't require a formal exercise always. At any moment, publicly or privately, out loud or, or in, in the quietness of our, of our spirit, Lord, in, in any moment, Father, we are welcome to you. We have free and direct access to you through Jesus Christ. I pray we would not take this for granted. The way you've loved us and opened up yourself to us, Lord, and invited us to draw near. Make us a people of prayer. That we'd see our dependence, our need for you, and that we would act in faith and worship. That we'd speak to you as our Father and delight in you. Lord, give us, I pray, a, a firm footing together on your word that we'd see your word as breathed out by your very spirit, Father. That your word is not only true, but all sufficient for life. And therefore, we can know and, and live out your will, as your people did in Acts chapter 1. Father, what a joy. We have these privileges given to us, Father, because you call us your dear children. I pray we'd not take these things for granted but we would treasure Jesus, our Savior, such that everything else would take orbit around him. He is our center. He is our, our great hope. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our friend. Thank you, Father, for all that we have in you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.